For another perspective on the complex considerations in management of CLL and NHL, I met with nurse practitioner Ms. Amy Goodrich, who presented several patients from her practice, beginning with a young man who had noticed enlarged lymph nodes for several years. He is actually a gentleman I saw a couple weeks ago with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. He is 43 and had a three-year history of waxing and waning cervical adenopathy that he really didn't think anything of. And it really was, his wife was more concerned about it than he was and made him get worked up. But really the issue was over the past three months, it really persisted and it grew in a way that it had not for the previous three years. So on presentation, completely asymptomatic. So no fevers, night sweats, weight loss, no recent illnesses or travel to think that this might be anything infectious or exotic. No other medical problems, really a healthy young man. His primary care ordered antibiotics. Of course, they had no effect. And then he got referred out for a biopsy that revealed a grade two follicular lymphoma. Full staging workup included a PET CT that showed very small, two centimeter or less FDG avid nodes in his neck, his bilateral axillary regions, the mesentery, and bilateral groin. All of his labs were within normal limits. That included a CBC with diff, a comprehensive panel, his LDH, beta-2 microglobulin, and his bone marrow was negative. It was completely normal. So he has stage 3A follicular lymphoma, and his FLIPI score, his follicular lymphoma international prognostic index score is 2 for his stage, his stage 3, and for more than four nodal sites. He is a 3 because he's got disease above and below the diaphragm. Stage 1 is a single location. Stage 2 is more than one location on the same side of the diaphragm. Stage 3 is both sides of the diaphragm. And stage 4 is disseminated disease. And for most patients with follicular lymphomas, that's bone marrow involvement. The FLIPI score integrates stage number of nodal sites. It includes age, hemoglobin, LDH stage number of nodal sites, hemoglobin. So basically, like in pretty much every cancer, there's a system in follicular lymphoma to look at sort of what the prognosis is. Yes. And in his situation, what did you say to him? So in his situation... His wife was actually continued to be more disturbed than he was because, of course, he had had these nodes for three years waxing and waning, and she really had just noticed them. And so it's almost helpful when patients have this history of waxing and waning adenopathy because they really understand that nothing is urgent because they know that this has been going on for quite some time. So he really, that was a very easy conversation to have with him. They were very comfortable with watching and waiting, understanding that this had really been going on for a long time, that he really had no indication for therapy. He doesn't have bulky disease. He's asymptomatic. His counts are, you know, he's not having cytopenias. There's no impending organ damage going on here. And so really, we focused on watching and waiting, really focused on the fact that had some of his adenopathy not been in his cervical region, it could have been years before he was diagnosed. And he completely understood that. They were very comfortable with that, fortunately. But not all patients are so comfortable with the watching and waiting conversation initially. It's a really tricky situation. It reminds me a little bit in prostate cancer. You have the same thing where urologists say, well, yeah, we say to some of these men, we can watch and wait, but then they start getting nervous. Is that what happens with these patients too? They do. But I think if you can really explain to them the indications for treatment, it 
decreases their anxiety level. And really giving them time to go out and look for information, sending them to reputable websites and going to reputable places, the National Cancer Institute, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, to get information. There really is a lot out there for patients that back up what we're saying to them. Does he have children? Four children. What ages? The oldest one is 21. He and his wife were high school sweethearts, and the oldest one is like seven. So they had four children with a big span. But So he's got potential donors. He's got siblings. So he's somebody who, you know, really the gamut is on the table for him of treatment options once kind of, he does need treatment. What kind of work does he do? He's a welder. And can you talk a little bit more about his reaction and his wife's reaction to this situation And your discussions with them, for example, did the issue of curability come up? So the issue of curability did come up. And it's always hard in people who are younger. And it's a difficult conversation that this is generally an incurable disease. Although when you come from an academic healthcare setting where you do lots of aloe transplants, that really is the only curative option for these patients. And being 43 years old, being in good health, having siblings, having four children, I suspect at some point he will go to aloe transplant with curative intent, although hopefully it's 10 years from now and not two or three years from now. So his wife is actually a nurse. So she really had very good questions and really asked very on-target things. And so they went away very comfortable. I don't know if they asked you this, but you mentioned the possibility of cure with alloy transplant. What would you say, if they had asked you, well, what's the chance that it would be curative? What would you say? So our data at Hopkins show that about 50% of patients going into a transplant in the right setting, meaning, you know, not waiting for the last thing, doing this not as initial therapy, but certainly not waiting until they have grown through everything and have become chemo-resistant, that we really actually have pretty good numbers. Is there sort of an age limit where you start pulling back from transplant in this situation? No, there's not, because we'll do full myeloablatives up to age 55 and then move on to non-myeloablatives for folks over 55. And can you explain what the difference is? Sure. So the myeloablative transplant is that traditional transplant that we all think of with high-dose therapy where patients are in the hospital for a number of weeks and, you know, completely bottom out their counts and are at risk for all of those horrible things, infection, bleeding that we think of with bone marrow transplant versus a non-myeloblative where patients get very low intensity chemo simply to chip their marrow down enough to make room for the new marrow to get in there and set up shop. And it's an outpatient procedure. The complication rate is much lower in terms of the chemo-related issues, although graft-versus-host disease is still an issue with either modality. Now, what fraction of patients with follicular lymphoma overall, globally, looking at all age groups, end up getting transplant? I don't know that. I know that where I work, we really do a lot of them. I suspect in more community settings, that's not the case at all. Yeah, that's my suspicion, too. But I think for this man, if he were diagnosed in the community, he would have been referred in. Sure, sure. So this man would have ended up in a large academic healthcare setting wherever he had been diagnosed. What's the usual age of diagnosis with follicular lymphoma? 60s, in the 60s. So this is definitely a young patient. Can you talk about, in addition to transplant, what are some of the other therapies that are utilized in these patients? Sure. So, of course, you know, rituxan is the backbone of any 
B-cell lymphoma therapy. You know, if he were 83, we would be talking about single-agent rituxan initially. And even at 43, we really may be talking about single-agent rituxan initially. And then moving on to something like CHOP or CVP plus rituxan as first-line therapy. Certainly, if people have contraindications to either the alkylator or the vinca portion, you could use a fludarabine-based regimen for these folks, first line. And then second line, you can use any of those that you hadn't used. And bendamustine is really the most exciting new agent that we've got, you know, which is our hybrid alkylator with purine analog properties with very nice toxicity profiles. And, you know, then the other thing is also our radioimmunotherapy agents, our Zevalin and our Bexar. I'm particularly interested in what you say to patients who are about to embark on these various therapies in terms of what to expect, how they work, how you describe it to a patient. Let's start out with rituximab. Sure. So I think the most important thing to start out with talking to patients about rituxan is really making sure they understand that it's not chemotherapy. And that's actually a very hard thing to get through patients' minds, that this is not chemotherapy we're talking about. And with the right education, they do understand that. And really focusing on the infusion events. Can you explain, though, how you explain to patients how rituximab works? Sure, that it's targeted therapy, that it hooks on to the B cells, the normal ones and the abnormal ones, so it hooks on to their cancer and attacks the cancer and essentially leaves the other normal cells alone. What about if a patient asks you, well, you're saying it's attacking my normal cells, will it interfere with my ability to fight infection or deal with any specific problems that might come up? Right, and so the answer is no, that we are plucking off one line of their immune system, but there are other lines and other cells that we are leaving completely intact, although that does become an issue when you talk about maintenance for Tuxan. And once you reach that two-year mark, then being careful about not overusing it because of the risk of infections. As long as you brought that up, maybe we can get into that a little bit, because that certainly is a real controversial question, Mm -hmm. the idea of extending out rituximab, as you say, maintenance. It's being looked at in clinical trials. Again, how do you explain to patients the theory behind it and also the potential risks of it? Explaining the theory behind it, it's actually an easy conversation to have with patients because once they've had rituxan and they get through that initial infusion and they realize that it really doesn't impact their life, that it's, yes, you're spending the better part of a day in a chair hooked up to an IV, but other than that, there's no nausea vomiting, there's no hair loss. And when you explain to them that you can potentially extend their remission by giving maintenance doses. It is a very easy discussion to have with them. It's kind of intuitive. I guess as I've been hearing people talk about this, I've been thinking about endocrine therapy and breast cancer, Mm -hmm. where originally tamoxifen was given for a year, then two years, then five years, and, you know, longer-term therapy. What do we know right now about rituximab maintenance in different situations and, you know, whether or not it actually helps? So we know that in patients who have gotten a chemo regimen that contained rituxan, if they have a partial, meaning a 50% reduction or greater in their tumor burden, that extending that every six months for two years does extend their remissions. What we don't know is upfront. There are trials going on trying to answer that question for upfront initial therapy rituxan. So in other words, I guess there's a difference between a patient who's received rituximab 
down the line yes. as part of progressive disease as opposed to somebody who gets it up front? Correct. Do you just keep it going? So we tend to be very science-driven and try to put people on a protocol that are getting rituxan as their initial therapy if we want to do maintenance. What about the issue of maintenance off-study? Do you do that or not? So I think everybody does maintenance off-study, but we really try not to do maintenance off-study and to learn something. Again, and a patient is about to begin rituximab, what do you say to them in terms of the infusion and fusion reactions? So we cover the big things, the fevers, the rashes, the chills, the you know sensation of sinus stuffiness, and some people get some throat swelling. Basically, I prep them that the nurses are going to be watching them very closely, taking vital signs, and that if anything, absolutely anything, feels different, they need to let somebody know. Because when you look at the side effect profile of rituxan, it's quite large and can include many things. So really to cover the big things that I just mentioned, but then really letting patients know that anything that's different, they need to let somebody know. Patient says, what's the chance that I'm just going to get the infusion have zero problem? So 80% will have infusion events, and that's what I tell them. Expect to have something. Don't expect for it to be, you know, life-threatening or, you know, not allowing you to continue with completing your infusion. But patients should expect something. And when they ask you, is it going to stay that way or get better? So it's going to get better, yes. So it goes down to 40% on subsequent infusions, but the severity is lessened. I want to go on to your second case, the 61-year-old man. But before I do, just one final question about follicular lymphoma, which is considered a, quote, indolent lymphoma. But there's also the issue that some of these patients have what's been called transformation. Yes. Can you talk about that, what happens to the patient, how you diagnose it, and what's going on there? Sure. So the incidence of transformation is really not well known. What is it, actually? So transformation is when an area of the disease acts more aggressively and on biopsy actually is a different disease, and it's usually diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And so approximately 30% of patients, that's the best data out there, will at some point transform. Everybody wants to know when. Well, there is no rhyme or reason to it. For some patients, that's how they present. They present with transformed disease. It can happen at any point during the disease course. And so what we see is when their CAT scans are done, their routine CAT scans, there's one area that's really growing out of proportion to the other areas. And on biopsy, it is a different disease. It's more aggressive. And then those patients are treated as if they had diffuse large cell lymphoma as their primary disease. So they're treated aggressively. And the goal of therapy is to actually cure that transformation and then leave the person with the low-grade lymphoma that will grow back again. It's not a good thing to have transformed disease. You know, the prognosis is not as good for those patients, although for the folks who are diagnosed initially with transformation, in my experience, they tend to do better. You really can get rid of that high-grade portion and then just go on to deal with the low-grade portion. The thing that's difficult is in patients who've had three or four or five or six regimens and then they transform, it's very difficult to treat them aggressively enough to get the transformed disease under control. So your patient now is out there off treatment and being watched? Yes. And hopefully he can stay that way for a while? Yes. 
What about your 61-year-old man? Can you talk about him? Sure. So this is a 61-year-old healthy man diagnosed with stage 4A mantle cell three years ago. So was diagnosed in the community and treated in the community with six cycles of CHOP and Rituxan and achieved a complete response. Can you explain what mantle cell is? Sure. Mantle cell lymphoma is pathologically Under the microscope, it looks like an indolent lymphoma, but clinically, it's aggressive. It is definitely a unique subtype of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in that it is generally considered incurable. But unlike the true indolent lymphomas, where the median survival is 8 or 10 years, the median survival for mantle cell is 3 or 4 years because of the clinically aggressive nature of this disease. Now, you said that it looks under the microscope like follicular lymphoma. So how do you make the diagnosis? So the classic cytogenetic change for for mantle cell lymphoma is the translocation of chromosomes 11 and 14. And our pathologists are very good at looking for that, testing for that, and picking that up. But that is the hallmark. So that is truly how you make that diagnosis. And you mentioned that he was treated with rituximab, CHOP, what are some of the other approaches that are used in mantle cell upfront? So upfront therapies per the NCCN guidelines today are CHOP rituxan, EPOC rituxan, or hyper-CVAD rituxan with a modified version for older folks. Again, this is the average age. The median age is 63. So this is a disease of the older population, although can occur in much younger patients as well. Now, can you go through those different therapies you just named? And again, sort of what you tell patients to expect and what you tell them about sort of how it works. Sure. So we tend at Hopkins not to use a lot of hyper-CVAD. Hyper-CVAD, CHOP, and Rituxan have many of the same drugs in them. They all have cytoxin. They all have an alkylator. They all have steroids. The hyper-CVAD and EPOC are infusional and CHOP is outpatient-based. The real difference in the regimens is the inpatient-outpatient delineation and also the side effect profiles, that the side effects of hyper-CVAD are much, much greater than with our standard outpatient CHOP. And data shows that up to 60% or greater will have hospitalizations for complications after hyper-CVAD. Like what? Mainly infections. That is really the biggest issue with hyper-CVAD. Yeah, and a lot of oncologists in practice kind of shy away from that. They're concerned about it. And as you mentioned, there have been these other modified versions that are, I guess, what, a little bit less intense? Right, a little bit less intense and a little bit less toxic, yes. But I think for mantle cell lymphoma, it's important to know that that initial therapy is, it's important But the remission is not going to be as long as what you're expecting with our follicular patients. And so it's really important when someone's diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma, not only to figure out what you're going to give them up front, but what are we going to do after that? That's really the more important conversation than what you're going to give them initially, is what are we going to do after this to try to... After change this, this. so stem cell transplant. Exactly. So this gentleman gets six cycles of chopratuxan, goes into a complete remission, and gets it followed up by an autologous transplant. And that is a recognized option for consolidation after first-line therapy. Now, is that considered a curative strategy? It is generally not considered a curative strategy. It is really meant to, as I explain it to patients, it's meant to break the cycle 
of very short remissions. The goal is to get them a longer remission than they would have had just limping along getting standard chemo regimens. And so he goes on to get an autotransplant in first remission and goes two and a half years before he comes back for routine follow-up and is noted to have adenopathy on CT scans. And his pet backs this up and shows that there are FDG, AVID, all the enlarged nodes are lighting up on PET, and his biopsy confirms relapsed mantle cell. So he's now 64. He's got some newly diagnosed high blood pressure that is well-controlled. He's got no other medical problems. No symptoms from the tumor? No symptoms from the disease. No Hmm. symptoms from the disease. So... Is that where he is right now, or the story goes on? So this is where he is right now. Hmm. And so what we are talking about with him is getting some salvage therapy and going on to a non-myeloblative allogeneic transplant. Hmm. What kind of salvage therapy? So the options are really limitless with mantle cell lymphoma. So he's had chopratuxan. He could get a fludarabine-containing regimen. He could get Velcade, Bortezomib. He could get bendamustine, Rituxan. He really could get a multitude of things because really all we're trying to do here is quiet his disease down to get him onto a non-myeloblative transplant. So it's not as if we need to get a home run from this salvage therapy. We just need to get the disease under control. Can you talk about some of those options in terms of what to expect in terms of efficacy and side effects? Sure. So for Velcade, there's about a 33% response rate. The biggest issue with Velcade is the neurotoxicity in terms of long-term issues that patients are left with. You know, certainly blood counts and transient liver function study spikes are seen, but it's really that neurotoxicity that they're potentially left with for the rest of their lives. What are some of the research strategies that are being looked at, particularly in terms of upfront or non-transplant kinds of strategies? So there are studies going on trying to fold bortezomib into hyper-CVAD, trying to take some of our novel agents and folding those in with our existing therapies. There really are a lot of studies going on in mantle cell lymphoma trying to do a better job for these patients. Because again, this is a disease of older folks. Not all of these people are going to be eligible for a myeloablative or a non-myeloablative allogeneic transplant. So really having a more robust toolbox to pull drugs out of is very important for these patients. And I feel like mantle cell is getting more attention today than it has ever gotten. And remember, it's a new disease. It was only first recognized in 1994. So this is really a baby. And I feel like we've actually come a long way with mantle cell for being such a newly recognized subset. It's also not that common. It is also not that common, right? It accounts for about 6% of all non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are diagnosed. About 66,000 people were diagnosed in 1980, and only 6% of them have mantle cell lymphoma. And that does make it difficult to study because it is a low-volume disease. How about your 20-year-old college student? So he continues to be quite a challenge. A 20-year-old young man, college student, with a three-month history of left hip and leg pain that began after a sports-related impact, a very physically fit, active young man. The pain gradually worsened, especially with activity. It became constant. It kept him awake at night. 
He finally went to seek medical attention. He had an x-ray and an MRI that revealed a large lytic lesion in his left hemipelvis. Essentially, his entire left hemipelvis was diseased. Biopsy revealed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Further staging was CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and in addition to the large lytic lesion, there was a soft tissue mass extending out of the bone, intruding into the pelvis and his gluteal region. Multiple iliac nodes were noted. All of his pelvic structures were displaced, although there was no invasion, and his PET scan also corroborated the CT findings. His LDH was very high. It was over 2,000. His beta-2 microglobulin was only slightly elevated. His other labs were normal. He did go on to get a lumbar puncture, and I think this is an important point to cover is who really is at high risk for CNS involvement. And so let's go on and say that his IPI score was 2. Okay, so he's not good risk, but he's not horrible risk. Can you explain what IPI is? We were talking before about flipping. Sure, the International Prognostic Index that looks at age, over 60 or under 60, performance status, LDH, number of extranodal sites, and stage. So his score is a 2. He gets six cycles of CHOP rituxan with six doses of intrathecal ARIC. And he gets the ARIC because he's got high-risk disease. He's got bony involvement. Some other indications for intrathecal therapy in addition to stage 4 disease are testicular involvement, sinus involvement, certainly bony involvement as well. Those patients have a higher incidence of CNS involvement. And it's actually quite a challenge for nurses when patients are getting intrathecal prophylaxis along with their chemotherapy. These people really are, they're much sicker than somebody just getting their CHOP rituxan. They have a lot more issues with nausea and vomiting because of that lumbar puncture, just the timing of the whole procedure. And again, this is a young person, but many of these folks are older. They have to have their lumbar punctures done under fluoroscopy. It's very difficult to access some of these folks at the bedside. And so having the timing of all that work out so that they're not having their intrathecal therapy during their nadir after their chemo. The other issue is that although it's an intrathecal dose, their counts really take tend to, they're much more cytopenic than the patients just getting chaprituxan. And so this adds a level of intensity and complication for the nurses taking care of them. Not only all the scheduling, but more side effects and more CBC issues for these folks. So he goes on to get six cycles, and his post-therapy PET-CT shows continued FDG-AVID disease in that huge pelvic soft tissue mass, which is actually not surprising because he's got very extensive disease, even though his IPI score is 2. He's got a bad two because of his extent of disease. Can you take a step back a little bit and put diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in Mm -hmm. context compared to the other two diseases we just talked about, follicular lymphoma and mantle cell? So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is an aggressive lymphoma, and initial therapy is undertaken with curative intent. 
And somewhere between, on average, 30 to 60% of those patients can actually be cured with their initial therapy. So this is a very different conversation that you're having with these patients in contrast to the folliculars, where you do a lot of watching and waiting. With mantle cell and with diffuse large cell, you tend not to do so much watching and waiting. And I guess in terms of, you know, clinical course, if you can't cure somebody. So if you can't cure the patients with diffuse large cell lymphoma, then you do move on to bone marrow transplant, and the intent is curative for them as well, although it's not that 60% of patients that go to transplant that will get cured. But for him, he's actually got very high risk disease in that he's essentially got primary refractory disease because his initial therapy did not get him into a complete remission. So he is somebody that we are doing ice. We've switched him to ice and rituxan, which is a very common salvage regimen. And what is ice? So ice is an ifosfamide-based regimen. You can do it infusional as inpatient, or you can do it outpatient. And we actually do ice outpatient. He actually had so much nausea and vomiting with ice that he's getting his inpatient now because he needs so much hydration. And he was actually very difficult to manage during his intrathecal therapy because of all the nausea and vomiting that he had. So it was not surprising that he had a really hard time with salvage therapy. And so he is somebody that we are working up for auto transplant. What's his family situation? So he has a very supportive family. He's got parents, and he has one sister. And we typed her, and she's a haplo, so which means a partial match. So she's not a full match, but she's a partial match. So he will get his autologous transplant, and then if he relapses in the future, we can use his sister or one of his parents for a mini-transplant. What's his state of mind? Interestingly, he was a psychology major, and so he is definitely having issues with depression, but understands the whole etiology behind why he's feeling that way. We actually have a robust team of mental health nurses, master's prepared mental health nurses that really do a great job of helping support these patients and also guide us in what the proper medication regimen should be for them. He has been unwilling to take anything in terms of antidepressants or anti-anxieties. He's been unwilling to do that, but he's not so depressed that it's an urgent issue. I mean, frankly, he's a guy who went from being on campus every day, being very active, to now feeling horrible. He still walks with a slight limp, so his entire life was turned upside down by this disease. We initially had some compliance issues with him. Again, he's 20 years old, and this is really a very high-risk age group for compliance. Do you think some kind of counseling would help him? Our folks are working with him, and it really has helped. It has definitely helped just for him to be able to sit and talk about all of the you know, how profoundly this has impacted his life. And they're really helping him try to figure out how to stay connected with his friends. Of course, he's not taking classes anymore. He's not on campus every day. He's not physically active. And those things were really the backbone of his existence. So they're really helping him try to figure out how to stay a part of his social infrastructure without being still in school and doing all those things that he normally did. How does it affect you to take care of him? It's actually very difficult. First of all, he's young. I think it's more difficult to take care of younger patients. It's also 
difficult because they do have this sense of invincibility and that they somehow know what's best for them and tend to be a little less compliant with instructions and things of that nature. I think they're a bigger challenge for everyone, not only physicians and nurse practitioners, but nurses as well. And one of the nurses who takes care of him has a daughter his age and really has also had a very difficult time becoming very emotionally involved with him. And I think that's very common for folks this young when we have patients this young. Anything that's available for your oncology professionals like this nurse that you're talking about? Do you have any kind of group meetings or counseling? Or Yes. Again, we have this team of mental health professionals who not only help our patients, but also the staff. They're available to us and they do group meetings and it's actually very helpful. What do we know about burnout? I know that you're involved also globally in managing the research nurses at Hopkins, but what do we know about burnout in general in terms of oncology healthcare professionals? So interestingly, there is a study going on at Hopkins right now in our Department of Nursing looking at resilience in oncology nurses. Resilience. Resilience. This is something that nurses, nursing studies in patients, resilience. But we're studying it now in oncology nurses, essentially trying to figure out what is it that allows someone to come into work every day dealing with these situations and these horrible issues every day. It's actually astonishing to me that the burnout rates in oncology, to me, in my opinion, are very low. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really They're very low. And it really, to me, seems that people either stay for a few years and realize that that is just not the place for them, or... They come, they fall in love with it, and they never leave. And within oncology, there are a lot of opportunities for nurses. There's doing inpatient, doing outpatient, doing, you know, education. There are all sorts of different things that a nurse can do in oncology because our patients' needs are so great that there really is a lot of diversity. And I know, especially in large academic healthcare centers, they carve out clinics so that nurses are generally working with you know, specific populations of patients. And then when you get burned out on that population, you can move to another one within oncology. But it's amazing to me how low the burnout rate is. So that's interesting. You're studying resilience. What do you think you're going to see? Our director of nursing is doing this project, trying to figure out what is it that allows someone to do this every day for 20 years, 30 years, and remain emotionally healthy And leave and go home at night and not be obsessed with, you know, all these horrible things that you dealt with all day. And it would be interesting to do that for physicians as well. (laughs) In my own mind, I think it's in a way, I'm not going to say genetic, but that they're just some people, I don't want to call them saints, but they're just some people for reasons that go way, way, way back. Right. They just have this ability to, you know, you talk to them, they're empathetic. Very sensitive. I find a lot of oncology nurses and physicians very empathetic and sensitive. And yet, you know, they just turn around and say, well, I know I'm helping this patient. I know that this patient may die anyhow, but I feel a sense of reward. You're right. It's a philosophy that people have. You know, it's a philosophical mindset that I am doing my best and I am helping this person and getting satisfaction out of just knowing that you're helping people but knowing that in the end, no one has control over what is ultimately going to be the outcome, but just trying to have people's quality of life be as high as it can during their disease.